a new series. Remember, we finished that couple week series on God's very good design. And uh, so now we're going to be going into a series on an overview of the Bible. Uh, for those of you who are just visiting with us today, typically we try to, our pattern is that we preach through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we've, we finished up the book of Genesis. We spent a couple years in the book of Genesis uh, right before Thanksgiving. We finished that. And um, then we've kind of gone into a few topic, couple topical series. And, and this one is going to last probably, my, uh, my hope is, uh, way less than a year. We'll see. Uh, but it should be because I just want to give you a, an overview of the Bible and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So those of you who uh, uh, turn, turn your Bibles if you to Luke chapter 24 and I believe we're going to pick up this morning in verse 13 to kind of set the scene for where we're headed. And, and so Luke 24 and those of you who are able if you'd stand with us, this is our pattern also as we stand and it's not so much out of ritual as it is a way to honor the fact that this is God's word and uh, we're so grateful that he's given us his word. So I guess it would help if I turned there too. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm in Matthew there. So Luke chapter 24, verse 13. This is after Jesus' death, his burial and his resurrection and Peter has gone to the empty tomb. You know, Mary and Mary Magdalene and some of the other ladies have already gone there and found that Jesus isn't in the tomb. Peter sees that no one, that Jesus is, is not in the tomb. It says, behold, two of them, that is two of Jesus' disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you're sad? And then the one whose name was Cleophas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem you've not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they came and did not find his body. And they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. I'm sorry. So when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And of certain women, I'm sorry, I'm certain of these who were with us, they went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, of slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And so beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this new series, Lord, to Lord, kind of get a bird's eye view 
of the entire Bible, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, first and foremost, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that we might know you by it. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in Christ, sending him, Lord, to take the punishment that we deserve. Lord, to rescue us, to redeem us. Lord, just as you promised you would. Lord, we ask that your spirit, Lord, would encourage us and would teach us, would open our eyes, Lord, just as you did to these disciples on the road to Emmaus as you began to open up the books to them and to explain that it all pointed to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. So it was jokingly said of Christopher Columbus that when he set out on his voyage of discovery that he didn't know where he was going, that when he arrived, he didn't know where he was, and then when he got home, he didn't know where he'd been. Sadly, that's probably an appropriate description of the average Christian's attempt to make a journey through the Bible, right? For many of us, it's kind of haphazard and clunky when it comes to our understanding of what this book is really all about. And if that describes you, don't be embarrassed. For many of us, much of the Bible is uncharted territory. We really don't have that good of a grasp on what this book is all about. And we have to admit that the church has to take some of the responsibility for our lack of understanding of the big picture of the Bible. Many of us in the pulpit have indoctrinated our people with what I will call the veggie tales view of the Bible. How many of you were raised on or watched and your children watched veggie tales? Many, oh yeah, see, we're a veggie tale generation, right? And you know, the, the veggie tales, one thing that you'll notice, I mean, they're, they're well done, well produced, but they're really just good moral stories, right? The fib from outer space teaches you about the importance of not lying, telling the truth. Oh, do you remember the one? It was set with the scene of Nebuchadnezzar and the great statue that he built. And it was, remember the song, Oh, the Bunny? The bunny, oh, I love the bunny, right? <laughs> about greed and idolatry. But it, was, it had good moral messages, and I'm not minimizing the importance of morals. Morals are important, but morals won't save us, right? And the fellow who created the VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, after he had finished... You know, years later after the VeggieTales had ended and uh, he looked back and he said, did I just spend 10 years persuading kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity? And that's really what happened with the VeggieTales. They were good moral stories based upon characters in the Bible, but it didn't have the gospel in it. You can't watch the Veggie Tales and learn that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. It was void of the gospel. 
And I think that's too oftentimes is what has happened in the church in the pulpit is we have taught people how to be good moral people. How to have good marriages, how to parent your children, how to do good at your work, how to have good relationships with one another. But we've got it turned upside down. We haven't taught them the greatest thing that we all need, which is to know our need for the Savior, which is what this book is about. Graham's Goldsworthy in his books, and I'll tell you, I'll just be right up front with you all of what the main books I'm using in this series we're going to be going through. This one's available over here in the book nook, and this is not a sales pitch, by the way. We, we don't make any money on anything we sell over there. We sell these things at cost. But Vaughn Roberts' uh, God's Big Picture is a really succinct, readable uh, book on the big picture of the Bible. And then this one, which we don't have over there, is called the Goldsworthy Trilogy by Graham's Goldsworthy. Um, I'm gleaning much from these two books as we go through this series. But Graham's Goldsworthy talks about the way that we approach the Bible. We, we, you know, we have our favorite characters, right? And lessons that we learn from them like David, right? And David, he comes on the scene and, and he's this little guy and they're out in this battlefield there and the Israel is pitted against the Philistines and, and they've got this big giant warrior by the name of Goliath, Right? And nobody, even King Saul, nobody wants to go up against this guy because they're afraid of him that he's just, they're just gonna, he's just gonna whip them. Head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, he's like the MMA, you know, champion of the world at that time. Conor McGregor is just a, you know, a little nothing compared to Goliath. And here's David. David's just a little runt of a guy. And David's like, hey, I'll take him. And so he comes up, you know, and he's got his sling and his five stones. And, you know, we moralize the whole story, as, as Graham's goes toward his point, you know, that his sling represents his faith, right? And he picks up these five smooth stones, which represent obedience and service and Bible reading and prayer and fellowship. They represent the spiritual disciplines on how we, if we practice these things, if we do these things, how we can conquer the giants in our life, right? I've got a book in there on my bookshelf. It's called Conquering the Giants in Your Life. And it's, I won't tell you who it's written by. I may have thrown it away by now, but but it's on the story of David and Goliath, and it, true to form, illustrates our point here, how we take these characters and we moralize them. But that's not what the story of David and Goliath and Israel is about. We're not David. Right? The enemy isn't our spouse. Goliath, or our children, or your boss at work, or that friend that, or that, you know, that person at school who might be bullying you, or that teacher, or that professor, that's, that's not Goliath, or, you know, your fears, that's not Goliath. David is a picture of Christ. 
Goliath is a picture of the enemy. And if, and if we're anybody in the story, we're Israel and we're scared to death and we need a deliverer, right? But we moralize the story and we glean all these principles out of it that help us, we think, to live a better life. But that's not what the Bible's about. But even if we know that the Bible isn't about being good, it's not about being moral, that being good people doesn't get us to heaven. We we may know that, but yet if someone were to stop us and say, hey, can you tell me succinctly, fairly quickly, what, what is the Bible about? I would, you would, most of us would struggle with clearly being able to capture the big picture of the Bible to be able to communicate that to someone fairly easily. We would have a hard time telling someone else what it's really about. And like I said, we've got our favorite passages, the stories that we're familiar with, characters that we love, and maybe specific certain books within the Bible that we really love, and we go back and we read them over and over and over again, right? But here's the truth, is that we really don't see how the pieces of the puzzle fit together to make one big picture. And how the picture tells the story about who Jesus is and why he came. That's the big picture of the Bible, right? Graham's Goldsworthy describes why this is a problem for us. And he also offers a solution. He says, when you're close to the ground, it's often very hard to see exactly where you are in relationship to other places. Yeah, we get that. A few trees, a dip in the ground couple of buildings or some other natural man-made feature can prevent us from getting our bearings. That's why people build observation platforms on high buildings or on mountains and why aerial photography became so important in war and also in peacetime making of maps. The bird's eye view enables us to see things and places in relation to other things and places. It helps us to see how different parts function in relationship to one another. So he says it's a problem because we're at the ground level and there's obstacles in our way, right? Uh, have you ever been to an observation tower? Uh, a year or so back, we went on a little trip to the New England area with uh, Bill and Sally Shewer. And our last stop as we, before we headed home, we spent a couple of days in New York City. And one of the days we went to the Empire State Building. And we took the elevators up and we went up to the observation deck, you know, where you go outside there and around the rails. And what a magnificent view. But I mean, if you're walking the streets of New York, you really don't have, unless you have a map or you've got your phone and, you know, your little GPS on there, you don't have a clue really where you're at in relationship to anything else in New York. But once you get up onto the Empire State Building observation deck and you look out, you look south from the observation deck, kind of southeast, and here's the Brooklyn Bridge and Brooklyn over here, right? You look kind of southwest just a little bit, and, and, and here's the, Empire, or the uh, Statue of Liberty. You go to the other side of the observation deck, and you face north, and what do you see? Central Park, right? But if you're on the ground, you're just kind of clumsily trying to figure out where you're at. So a bird's eye view is very helpful. 
Here's another way of saying what the problem is, is that we can't see the forest for the trees, right? You've heard that expression before? So, so here's what happens when we get into a book of the Bible. Let's say, you know, we get into the book of Leviticus. And, and there we are, and we're at ground level. And we get lost in the details, don't we? Which is why many of us have probably never read through the entire book of Leviticus. Because it's like, I don't get all this stuff. Sacrifices and sin offerings, clean foods and unclean foods, ritual washings, the blood of bulls and goats over. I mean, it's just all this blood, blood, blood everywhere. What's this got to do with who Jesus is and why he came? It's the same way with the book of Joshua, right? We get into the book of Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They got, they, they got AI, they got, they got Jericho, the walls come down, and then they begin to fan out, and they begin to conquer parts of the land. But then they get to the end of the book of Joshua, and what happens? They still don't have all the land under their control. There's still pockets of enemy left in the land. And we look at Joshua and say, well, he's a great leader, but we miss the big picture of what it's about, that Joshua points to Jesus and this kingdom that we sing about, that we talk about, that he's going to bring, and he's going to rule over. Joshua couldn't do it because he's not Jesus. Just like Moses, he got him to the edge of the promised land, but he couldn't take him in. Why? Because he's not Jesus. He's a human. You know, we get in the book of Judges, and we read about all these different judges. We read about Othniel. We read about Ehud, one of my favorite judges in the book of Judges, right? The guy who takes, he's left-handed, takes the dagger. You know, I tell this story all the time. And he gets Ehud, and he's right in the gut and all the bury the guy is so fat and it buries him up to the up to the 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 hilt of the handle and folds around it and he falls over dead and and then you get to shamgar who's only got one verse he takes an ox gold and killed 600 philistines you remember that i don't know if he just pokes him to death or what he does (laughs) and then you got gideon right and the 300 men they conquer the philistines or the midianites Deborah and Barak. Then you come to Samson, right? Morally, he's a failure. But at the end of it all, you know, his guys are gouged out. He's in a Philistine prison, and, 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 which is under the, the temple of Dagon. One last time, God, give me strength. And he pushes the pillars down, and the house falls down. Philistines are killed. But after every judge... There's more problems because all these judges, they're just shadows. They're shadows of Christ. They couldn't deliver Israel. They couldn't fully rescue Israel because there's only one who can, and that's the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. So we get caught up in the details and we forget the big picture, right? That's why we're doing this series so that we can get above the trees and see the forest and appreciate what the Bible is about. So we're doing a flyover, I guess you could say, of the Bible at about 35,000 feet. We're going to fly over the territory, 
that we're going to journey through in the coming weeks. Now, now, if this overwhelms you, maybe you're a person who gets a little anxious on flights. You're starting to panic already. You're worried that you won't get it, that this is somehow going to be over your head. Not at all. Sit back. Just relax. There's no parachutes, so don't jump. But today we're going to start our flyover, I guess you could say. We're going to take off. We're going to reach cruising altitude. And then next week, we'll land the plane at our destination. And the following week, we'll get some ground transportation. And we'll begin to look at the Bible, book by book, section by section. We won't spend a ton of time in each book because we're just doing a flyover to this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we're going to do it at a hyper speed, for me anyway, <laughs> over the coming weeks after that to go from Genesis to Revelation. So we will not be going verse by verse through the book. We're getting a big, eye, big bird's eye view of this from observation tower on the Empire State Building. So here's the first thing I want you to do, and I'm not going to apologize for being oversimplistic. I think this is important. I want you to turn in the very front of your Bibles to your table of contents. And I want you to notice this, that in your table of contents, our Bibles are broken up into two sections, right? The top section, or the left-hand section, depending on how your table of contents is laid out, titles it the Old Testament. The second section is titled the New Testament, right? And you'll notice, it may not have a number there, but you'll notice that there are more books in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. 66 books. And those 66 books make, make up one book. This is one book. One book, one author, one subject. Makes up one book that we call the Bible. And this Old and New Testament made up of 66 books, it's a collection of books that all relate to one another. There's a unity there. How many of you are familiar with uh, Agatha Christie novels? Miss Marple's uh, Hercule uh, Poirot, right? Uh, Miss Marple's, I think there's like 12 novels, and Hercule, there's 33 novels. You could pick up any one of the Miss Marple or Hercule uh, Poirot. Perot, uh, you remember uh, one of the famous ones of, of that series was uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. But you could pick up any one of those novels from either one of those series that's written by her, and you would be just fine figuring out where you're at in the storyline because they're not, they're, there's not a unified story from one novel to the next to the next. There's not this building so much of characters. So they are standalone novels. Kind of like uh, if you're a Charles Dickens fans and the classics, you know, he, he, wrote some, he wrote several different novels, A Christmas Carol, um, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, right? Those are also standalone novels. 
You don't have to read in any certain order those novels to get the picture of what he's talking about. They're standalone novels. If you had all of them, you'd have a great collection. Well, oh, that's okay. She's going to figure it out. She's all right. Don't you hate that when it happens and you're the one? You know everybody's looking at it. So we just, we just let you know. We all look. It's okay. It's all right. And so they're individual standalone novels, right? But the, but the Bible isn't like that. It's essentially one book comprised of 66 individual parts, okay? All interconnected. And each individual part needs to be considered in light of the other parts and how it contributes to the big picture. Uh, kind of like this. How many of you are familiar with the Harry Potter series, right? Not, not many of you want to admit it because you're like, if I do, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And I get it. Okay. Uh, VeggieTales taught me not to do, not to watch those. And okay. And I taught people not to watch those years ago too. But anyway, that was a different age. Um, but you remember, there, there's seven books in that series that J.K. Rowling, Rowling uh, wrote, and, but they're all interrelated to the whole story. You just can't pick up you know, and, and sit down and watch the, the fourth DVD or the seventh DVD and understand who this Tom Riddle character is, or this Harry Potter. Where do you get that scar on his head, right? You have to watch them from the beginning to the end to understand the big picture of it. Same with the Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, right? They are meant to, they're interrelated. They each connect one to another. It's kind of like, uh, um, what's the, uh, the newest Marvel that's coming out? Um, Endgame, right? How many of you are familiar with the new Marvel uh, movies that are coming out, Marvel Comics, Endgame. Listen, you can't just go watch Endgame when it comes out in May if you haven't seen Infinity Wars, right? I mean, that would just be like, that's just a bonehead. That's, a, that's just a bonehead move to do that. And you really can't watch Infinity Wars if you don't know who Star-Lord is, right? Guardians of the Galaxy, probably the most important character of all because he got the best music in those. <laughs> Doctor Strange, Thor. I mean, you don't just, I mean, where's this whole thing about the hammer? Where's it all coming from? And he's Black Panther. He's in there. All these different characters. You don't, if you just go watch Infinity War Endgame and you don't know the backstory, you're missing out on a lot, right? So they're all interconnected. They contribute to the whole, to the big picture. And they're necessary to understanding what it's about. It's like Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Paul's letter to the Romans really isn't 16 chapters. I know that's what it shows in the Bible, right? But you know, we didn't have chapters and verses until around 1222 A.D. That's when they put actual chapter and verse divisions in it just to help us better be able to find things and cross-reference. And then and the Wycliffe Bible translation was the first Bible uh, translation to use chapter and verse divisions. But Paul's letter is really, it's not 16 individual parts. You can't just go to Romans chapter 8 
and understand what he's writing about unless you've read the other seven chapters, right? Because it's one letter. He wrote one letter to the church of Rome. It's called the book of Romans, the letter, the epistle to the Romans. So the Bible is one book. Each part of the, of the Bible, each book of the Bible is interrelated to the whole story, to the big picture. So the Bible is one book and it has one author. Now, we know that there are human authors, right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You have Samuel who contributed, David, Solomon may have written uh, Proverbs. You get to the New Testament, you have the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the the bulk of the New Testament is written by uh, Paul, and you have Peter who contributes, and the apostle John who writes the book of Revelation. So you have 40 human authors, but fundamentally the the Bible has one author, one source that it comes from. God is the ultimate author of the Bible. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, all scripture is God-breathed. There's one source for scripture. God spoke it. And human authors wrote it down, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in other words... All scripture is God breathed. The Holy Spirit moved on holy people. He moved on men. And they pinned down the things that God inspired them to write. So it has one source, and that's God. And so this is a divine book. That's why we call it God's word, right? He's the ultimate author. So it's one book with one author, and it has one supreme subject that binds it all together. And what is that subject? Good morals, right? No. The subject is Jesus Christ and the salvation that God provides through him. That's what the entire Bible is about. Now, now most of us know that's true about the New Testament. But we think the Old Testament, which is why we don't spend a lot of time in it, We think the Old Testament is just a bunch of history, you know, uh, uh, about Israel that really doesn't relate to us and it has no relation to the New Testament. It's just this old stuff that we really don't care to figure out. But the truth is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are about the exact same subject. Every book of the Bible is about the same subject. Jesus said in John chapter 5, he says to Israel, to the leaders of Israel, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He says, the scriptures are about me. Now, what scriptures was he talking about? There was no New Testament yet. Not one book of the New Testament had been written yet because Jesus is still alive. So he's talking to them about the Old Testament. He said, everything in the Old Testament scriptures is about me. And we just read this morning in Luke 24 on Jesus on the road uh, to Emmaus with these two disciples, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's talking about the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the same things concerning himself. 
So he says the whole Old Testament to the guys at the, uh, on the road. Can you imagine what a great Bible study that would have been, that seven-mile journey? And, and in, in seven miles, he opens up the entire Old Testament. He says, hey, every book in the Old Testament is about me. And he goes on to say to his disciples just a short time later in verse 44, he says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He said, so everything in the Old Testament, we, we think the Old Testament has nothing to do really with the New Testament, but Jesus said it has, everything in the Old Testament points to me. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected. They're related and they're necessary to seeing the big picture. If we only had the New Testament, do you know what the problem would be? We wouldn't have a clue. Why did Jesus have to come? We wouldn't know. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we wouldn't know what happened in the garden. We wouldn't know that Adam and Eve sinned. And we didn't know that God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to send one who was going to crush the head of the serpent, who was going to rescue his people, right? And if we only had the Old Testament, what would be the problem with that? Is that we would have a story that had no ending. We would have a promise, but no fulfillment. The whole Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus Christ and the salvation that God provides through him. You remember what it says in the Psalm, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. It also repeats it in Hebrews 10, 7. This is be Jesus himself speaking. He says, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. He says, it's written of me to do your will. What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father was that Jesus would come and he would rescue his people. He would deliver us from our sin. So we have one book, one author, one subject. And this is the last point I want to make this morning. So we've got this big picture in our minds. Like a skyscraper maybe that we want to build. But but now we need to construct a framework so that the outline of the building begins to take shape. And we can't just throw up any framework. We we need to make sure that that it's the framework that the architect intends. That means that the framework, or we could also call it the theme, has to come out of the Bible itself rather than us pressing upon from the outside our own ideas about what the Bible is. And so we want to pull from the Bible, we want to exegete from the Bible what the framework, what the theme is supposed to be. And this framework, it's not, this theme is not unique to me. I'm borrowing it from Graham's Goldsworthy and from Vaughn Roberts. Uh, the framework that we're going to use over the next several weeks is going to be the kingdom of God. That's the unifying theme of the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. Remember we, we sang about the last song this morning, Behold our God seated on his throne. Behold our king, nothing can compare We sing about this. That's the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom was the dominant theme in Jesus' teaching. You remember John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's the forerunner. John the Baptist is the one who bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament. He connects 
them together. He's Old Testament, Jesus is New Testament. He's Old Covenant, Jesus is New Covenant. And John comes on the, on the scene, and what does he say as he's pointing to Christ? He says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He says, repent, behold, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes on the scene in the very next chapter in, in Matthew's gospel, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so they have this nice little dovetail fit together, the Old Testament, New Testament. This is what the Old Testament prophesied, is that God was going to usher in his kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is here. Jesus taught that his mission was to introduce the kingdom in fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, now you you can look high and low in the Old Testament. You will not find the expression kingdom of God in the Old Testament. But the concept is certainly there. Graham Goldsworthy says that the kingdom of God is the binding theme of the whole Bible. And that's certainly not in, um, that's not in opposition to a covenantal approach to looking at the Bible. You know, you look at the different covenants, the, the uh, covenant with Adam, the covenant with Moses, the, uh, or with Abraham, and then with Moses, and then with David, and then the new covenant. Uh, God's covenant promises are his kingdom promises. Goldsworthy defines the kingdom as, and this is the important takeaway this morning. Here's what the kingdom of God is. If this is the unifying theme of the entire Bible is the kingdom of God, we need to understand what it is. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, Enjoying God's blessing. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, he's the king, he's the sovereign, and we enjoy his blessings. You remember, that's what it looked like. That's exactly what it looked like at creation, didn't it? Adam and Eve, God's people, In God's place, the Garden of Eden, right, paradise, enjoying God's blessings, right, under God's rule and enjoying his blessings. And that's what every book in the Bible is moving. We lost it all in Eden, right? And Adam and Eve were put out of the garden. We'll talk about that next week. They rebelled against God's rule and they lost God's blessings, right? And the entire theme of the Bible, every book of the Bible is moving toward the restoration of God's kingdom. God's promise to restore his kingdom through his son so that God's people are in God's place under God's rule so that we might enjoy his blessings. So with that, I'm going to ask Jason, I'm assuming you're leading this morning to come up and the ushers, we're going to close with communion this morning.